Hello, I'm Kane Winstead. Hello, Internet. I'm Matthew Derrigish. And you're listening to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where we'll be taking a look at the deep cuts and forgotten stories of the Spider-Man library, looking for lost gems and what it truly means to be a Spider-Man story. If you've been listening to the show and wondering when we were going to get to the good stuff, when we were going to unearth something really mind-blowing, this is it. As an apology for covering trouble, we are very excited to be putting the spotlight on a true lost classic, Spectacular Spider-Man number 178 through 184, The Child Within. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled and inked by Sal Buscema, Colors by Bob Sharon, and lettered by Rick Parker. Unfortunately, the only way to get this comic is to grab the back issues. That's right, this truly is a lost classic. They aren't too hard to find, though, and not too expensive either. Just make sure you grab 184 as well, which is labeled Aftermath, and not just part 1 through 6 with the numbering on the covers. So again, that's Spectacular Spider-Man 178 through 184. I actually found this one today in the dollar bin. It's not too expensive. Uh, You should be able to find it relatively easily. And same with online. I did not look up to see how much this one is going for online, but it's it's not going to be much. Um, For those who need a quick synopsis for context, The Child Within marks the moment Harry snaps, which ultimately leads to his death in the double-sized Spectacular Spider-Man number 200. The story follows Spider-Man, Harry, and Vermin as the three of them struggle with The Child Within, a metaphor for how their childhoods and childhood traumas shape them into the people they are today. The story also introduces Dr. Ashley Kafka, who serves as a talented doctor fighting to rescue the man trapped trapped within what has become Vermin. Uh, Dr. Ashley Kafka is also featured heavily in the 90s um she acts as kind of a carnage side character and then is forgotten through the jms era more or less and then gets picked up by slot again so he can kill her off in superior during that massacre storyline it was actually Hmm? it was during clone conspiracy oh it was during clone conspiracy i I thought it was during the massacre storyline well then Oops. (laughs) Ultimately, this story is an examination of Peter dealing with his abandonment issues from the time his parents left him as an orphan, uh, contrasted with Vermin dealing with his history of abuse, and also contrasted with Harry dealing with the estrangement period with Norman as a child growing up, all of them dealing with the child within. Uh, After the initial six-part story is an issue labeled Aftermath, which we talked about earlier. Uh, That follows Spider-Man as he searches for Harry after the events of 183. uh, Searches for Harry to no avail. And really just make sure you read the whole thing because it's great. But the J.M. DeMatteis era on Spectacular truly starts here. Joining us for a conversation today is none other than J.M. DeMatteis, who took the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about his greater work as well as these issues in particular. We hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we enjoyed administering it. 
Today we're excited to bring J.M. DeMatteis onto the show. His career spans a wide breadth of comics, animation, television, and even some music reporting. Of course, we're focusing on the part of his career that touched Spider-Man. You may remember his writing from Craven's Last Hunt, The Passing of Ant-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 400, The Death of Harry Osborn Spectacular 200, or even our recently covered Soul of the Hunter story. Today we have him to talk about the unsung and often overlooked classic story, The Child Within. Before we dive into the story, though, we did have a few general questions to get started. Kane, take us away. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first. Uh, J.M., what... Do you remember what your first Spider-Man comic was? Um, I do. I mean, well, you know, I remember being aware of Spider-Man when I was when I was a kid, and and I was mostly reading DC comics, and and it was this is in the '60s, so the when the Marvel comics were appearing out there, they were very very different from the DC. You know, DC comics are very clean, very sculpted, very. Um, they were, they were great comics, but they were on the borderline of kind of antiseptic, you know, and the Marvel comics were very sort of garish and, and rough. And, 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 and I remember seeing Spider-Man and I remember being at somebody's house and them showing me a Spider-Man comic and it just looked so weird. You know, Ditko's art was so strange. It was almost disturbing. So was Kirby's to me as a kid. When I first discovered it, it was just too weird and disturbing. Um, but I think the first the first Spider-Man story I ever read was a reprint of the origin, which was in a book called Marvel Tales. It was um, an annual, I think. And uh, it was my first real exposure to Marvel. And I remember reading a bunch of them and then running out and buying Avengers number one, believe it or not, this is how far back it goes. And yet somehow I think the Marvel stuff was just too much for my little brain. So I, I must've been, I don't know, seven or eight years old or something. So I, I went back to DC and really started reading Spider-Man regularly with uh, the John Romita run. And the, the story that I remember very distinctly was part two of that great Green Goblin story when we when they revealed Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin, which probably remains my favorite Spider-Man story of all time. Well, do you think that story influenced the way you wrote Spider-Man later? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. You know, one of the things about that story was it was very personal because it was, it was the hero and the villain, but it was, it, if you uh, remember the cover of the issue before that, which really intrigued me as a kid before I'd even read it was the green goblin flying over the city, dragging, not Spider-Man really, but Peter Parker. And so the masks were off and this was really Norman Osborn versus Peter Parker more than it was Spider-Man versus the green goblin. So it was really personal and really character driven. And certainly, um, that's what I've always tried to do in my work. So in some way, I guess my work has 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 echoed the elements that I responded to in that story. All right. And uh, one more before we dive into The Child Within, just pull back a little bit. And who are some of your influences? Uh, not necessarily just in comics, but could could you name someone you would you would call like a great influence on how how you write? Oh, gosh, you know, it's. You're talking about the writers specifically, because, you, know, you know, really everything in life is really an influence on how one writes all our life experiences. But in terms of writer, in terms of comics, you know, certainly Lee and Kirby, uh, uh, Steve Gerber, Len Wein, people like that, um, just to name a few, Will Eisner, um, and just writers in general, uh, Charles Dickens, Dostoevsky, J.D. Salinger, Ray Bradbury are just a few of my literary heroes. 
uh, to, uh, and whose work has really, really profoundly influenced me and touched my heart. Yeah. Great, great. All right, uh, Matt, you want to you want to jump right into the child within now? Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to dive back a little to what you were saying just a moment ago, because it sounds like you read that first Spider-Man comic at a fairly impressionable age. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, I happened to read uh, The Child Within at a very impressionable age. I was wondering, was there an intended audience as far as age range went for that story? Well, how old, how old were you when you read it? Oh, gosh, I had to be around eight. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty intense story for an eight year old. Um, that's like you know people come up to me and say I read Craven's Last Hunt when I was six, and I'm like, what did they do to you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, now go. I'm sorry, I got lost. What was the question again? Oh, what was the age? Uh, in, you know, I don't think that way. I don't think that way. I'm just following the story, and the, you know, obviously editorial gives you certain parameters. You can go just so far this way or just so far that way. Um, uh, and, you know, obviously Spider-Man is not an R-rated book, so you have to pull back. But, you know, it was a very adult story. And I guess in the end, you hope that you can write the story on enough levels that the eight-year-old kid will get something from it, but that the, the adult will get something from it. And they'll both both take take different things away. The kid will be more interested in, you know, Peter and the Green Goblin and Vermin fighting it out. And I think the adult will be more interested in in uh, the psychological uh, echoes within the story. But at the same time, I know a little kid, even though they're not necessarily processing it in the same way, can certainly pick up on the psychology of the story, just not in the same way that an adult can. So, but for me as a writer, I, I you know, sometimes I'll specifically, I have worked on specific projects that are all ages projects. Uh, but in general, I'm just following the story. And I depend on, and especially with these mainstream comics, you depend on your editor to tell you, uh, when you've stepped over a line or gone too far in one direction or another. But it's it's the characters that interest me. It's what's going on inside them that interests me. And I'm just following that. So I'm not thinking, really, when I'm in the creative act, I'm not thinking about the audience. I'm just thinking about the story. That's awesome. Was there any moment in this story in particular where uh, editorial had some pushback on some stuff? Because uh, it definitely goes to dark places, and that's very much and, 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 you know, I, I don't know, there, there may have been other stories that, that dealt with child sexual abuse in the way that this story did. I mean, it, it, deals, it deals with emotional abuse and psychological abuse and with vermin with uh, sexual abuse. And I think we did it in a way um, that, that I think was, was, was fairly restrained. I mean, we didn't, we didn't get exploitive with it at all. I, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, but no, no one, no one ever told me to, to pull back on anything. I had the same experience with Craven was a story which you look back for which for the, for the time was very, very dark. And no one said, no, don't do that. I remember the only note we ever got was there was one scene that Mike drew, drew with Furman where there were too many, too many human bones around him. And Jim said, take off a, Jim Shooter said, take out a few bones. And that was the only, the only pullback note we ever got. And uh, my editor on Child Within, Danny Fingeroth, um, you know, we worked really, really well together. He knew me. He, he trusted me. I trusted and respected him. And he gave me all the room I needed to uh, tell the story the way I wanted to tell it. That's awesome. I'm also just shocked that the one note was just there's too many bones in one seed. That's yeah, such a yeah. specific <laughs> detail. Yeah, I know. I know. It wasn't like, oh, we don't want Craven sticking a rifle in his mouth and blowing his head off. You know, it was like, <laughs> just, take out, just take out a couple of those bones. But again, <laughs> even that was done in a way we didn't like focus on brains splattering against the wall. You know, it was done in a, in a dramatic way, but it wasn't done in an exploitive way. And I think that's the key to, to pulling off a story like this, you know? 
um, is not to feel exploitive about it, because not especially with these kinds of sensitive issues that we dealt with in the child within. Right. And in this story and in all your stories, I hear the way you hone in on the characters is something called the big why. Is that right? Is, uh, yeah, that's what I talk about sometimes in my, um, in my writing classes when I do them. Um, it's, it's just that, you know, you, you want, that's to me the essence of sort of drilling into, to these characters, especially characters that have been around, uh, for decades and decades. And, you know, some of them for like, what is it? Superman's 80th anniversary, 85th anniversary right now. Um, you know, you want you want to find new places to explore. You want to find new corners of of the of the universe and of their psyches. And so, to me, it, the the big why is the way to go at it. To look at these characters and look at what they've done. A lot of what they do, you just sort of take for granted. And I always use Craven as a great example. You know, here's this guy who's who's um, running around in these leopard skin pedal pushers, chasing Spider Man, wanting to hunt him. And and I stop and say, so why? Why is he really doing that? What happened in his childhood that pushed what button that brought him to this place in his life? What experiences has he gone through that he has to express himself by doing this very odd thing, you know? And um, and that's a great way to get into all these characters is to say, you know, why? Why is, you know, Peter, Peter, there's so much guilt with Peter. And we've explored the guilt with Uncle Ben. But with The Child Within, I wanted to drill in deeper. And I was fascinated by this idea that, you know, he lost both his parents when he was very young. And and I know from experience that kids tend to take on, in a way, they're in situations where they feel powerless. And one of the ways that they gain power is by taking on responsibility and guilt for events that they really had nothing to do with. So I went into that corner of Peter's mind. You know, I asked the why, and I went into that corner of Peter's mind and, and found that part of him that felt somehow responsible for his parents' death, even though it was something that was completely, completely beyond him. And, and that's, you know, so, you know, why is he so guilty? Is it just Uncle Ben? Let's drill deeper. And that's the other thing. You ask why, and then you get out your little drill, and you just keep drilling deeper and deeper and deeper, you know? I definitely saw that in this and pretty much all of your stories. I, my question is, you set up a mirror in particular in the story with Vermin and Peter. And so... Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more on what's the big why with Furman? Yeah, you know, Vermin was a character that Mike Zeck and I had created um, when we were doing Captain America, which was which predated Craven, predated our work on Craven. And then when we did Craven's Last Hunt, I thought, oh, Mike and I had this had this character uh, in Captain America. Let's bring him into Craven's Last Hunt. He gave us a nice balance, a nice way to contrast Craven's approach and, and Peter's approach to being Spider Man. But um, I, you know, I had a sense of who he was and there were things that sort of, the great thing is a lot of these things come out in the writing. You know, I guess you ask the questions, yes, you drill deep, but when you're really cooking with the story, the characters tend to take over and they tend to reveal themselves to you as you go along. And there were certain things about Vermin that started coming up in, um, in Craven's Last Hunt and I wanted to know more about him. And so again, then, you know, you drill deeper and you follow the character and what I discovered was what I uh, and I, I and I feel like it's much more a discovery than me coming up with an idea or creating it. I feel like I'm discovering it in the characters was what went on in Vermin's childhood. And that, in fact, you know, when when Zemo had turned him into this man rat, the reason he took that form was because it was a, a literalization of how he felt as a kid. 
because of the abuse that he suffered as a kid. He felt like a little worthless rat-like creature, you know, because of the abuse that he suffered. And so I kind of cracked that open and used that as a way to explain the trauma of, of, of childhood sexual abuse and how it how it affects and impacts somebody's life. <laughs> uh, well, I, my question was going to be what, you know, uh, that you had used vermin a lot in your run and, and kind of what had pushed you to use an original character uh, rather than someone from the archives. Uh, but you, you kind of already answered that with that. You know, with that great answer. The good thing with an original character like that, that has not been used a hundred times, especially, is that you're, you know, I I am freer to peel that character apart and do with what I want with him because A, it's my character, and B, you know, Vermin is not, was not, you know, Dr. Octopus. Uh, He hadn't shown up in Spider Man a hundred times over, so there was more room to play and explore with him. And, and, um, you know, you mentioned Amira, all the characters in that story, Peter. Harry, Vermin, they're all sort of mirrors of each other's childhood pain and how it affects and impacts us as adults, which, of course, was the big theme of the story, ergo the title, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, I want to talk about Harry a, a little bit. Uh, this story marks the beginning of the end for Harry. You could make the argument that this this you know, spans and then directly leads into 200, which is, oh, yeah, absolutely. which is his, his death. And so what, what made you decide it was time for him to go? You know, I didn't decide. It wasn't like when I was writing the child within, it wasn't like I had in the back of my head and this story is going to unfold for almost two years. And in the end, I'm going to kill Harry. It, it didn't work that way. I was just sort of fascinated with Harry's character. In fact, if I remember correctly, and again, this is a long time ago, there may have been a, a, a throwaway scene with Harry in the run just before mine um, that's where maybe there was an off-panel balloon or something that indicated that Harry maybe was beginning to lose it again. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's something really worth exploring because, you know, Jerry Conway was the one who really uh, set up uh, that Harry is the Green Goblin and Harry's sort of and, – and actually Harry's mental instability started with Stan back with, in that famous uh, – drug story with Harry back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So I was you know, fascinated with Harry. And one of the things, you know, you're always looking for things in a story that will really have the most emotional resonance and impact. And the thing that I loved about that relationship between Peter and Harry was these guys were two best friends, absolutely loved each other. And they were also worst enemies. And the, the conflict and the tension between those two things, you know, I think one of the maybe 200 was that called best of enemies might have been the title of the story, which kind of summed up that whole that whole arc. It really was one, you know, two year story that just unfolded over the book in the course of that time. And I just love that because no matter how much Harry hated Peter and wanted to destroy him, there was a part of him that always, always loved him and cherished that friendship and vice versa with Peter. I, you know, and and I don't know if Peter hated Harry, but he certainly you know he certainly came to to uh, well man, you know he came right up to the edge of that mainly because of what Harry was doing to him and his family. So you had that incredible tension between the two of them, you know that 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 line between love and hate, uh, between best friends and worst enemies, and it just meant that kind of uh, drama makes for great stories. Definitely agree agree with you there, uh, Matt. Did you have a question? Oh, definitely. I was curious because in this story between Harry and Vermin, 
there's something I I would call it a fearful symmetry, which was a title used in Craven's Last Hunt, but I felt it better applied to this story in some aspects. And I was wondering if that mentality had carried over, or if that was just uh, in my mind. Well, in well, yeah, you that's that's what you're hoping for, you know, because it I I I I don't really do well with stories with casts of thousands, you know. I like to I like to zero in. If you look at Craven, it's essentially, you know, uh, Spider-Man, Craven, Vermin, and then Mary Jane to a lesser extent, but she's important to the story. And that's it over six issues. That's what it's about. And this is really about, you know, although other relationships play into it, the core of it is about Peter, Harry, and and, and Vermin. And you want them. You want there to be that symmetry. You want one thing to reflect the other. You want you know, one, one's, one's, to, to find the similarities between all three of them, and then also to mark the differences between all three of them. And again, to me, that's what makes for a really, really good story. I definitely did. And not just to your credit, but you had an incredibly talented art team behind you as well. Oh my God, yes. Um, that run with Sal is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite gigs I've ever had. Um, I had worked with Sal here and there before that. I think, you know, he, he was always Marvel's guy to go to when an artist, you know, was, was, uh, off doing something else and they needed to fill in. So I remember when I did Captain America, he stepped in for a few issues, uh, Marvel team up, he stepped in for a few issues, things like that. But I'd never really worked with him one-on-one like that on a series. And on this run, I don't know what it was. There was like some magical chemical reaction that virtually from the first page, the first panel, something clicked with us. You know, I remember turning in the plot and getting the pages back and it was just, it was everything I asked for and more. And, you know, the chemistry, which I've said this before, but chemistry between writers and artists uh, is the same as chemistry between people. You know, I've always used the example, you walk into a party, you see some beautiful girl across the room, you went over to talk to her and then you start to talk and nothing happens. There's no chemistry, you know, then you just turn around and just randomly bump into some other woman and instantly there's a click and something, something magical happens. And it's the same thing uh, between writers and artists uh, on on these stories. And with Sal, there was just this amazing chemistry. He, he responded to something in my stories that I think touched him and pushed him into some places he'd never been before as an artist. And then his art just came back at me and just made it so easy. Uh, really made it when, 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 when the, when you're working Marvel style, which is, you know, I write a very, very detailed plot. It goes off to the artist. He, he pencils it and then I do the dialogue and the, and the captions, uh, after that. Uh, when you have an artist like Sal whose storytelling is so fluid and so perfect and who can really draw and put all the emotion on the page, um, it's just a delight. And it was really, you know, just a delight to work with him. And one of the great, great collaborations of my career. And I always use the example of Spectacular Spider-Man 200, which is the death of Harry's story, where, you know, we get to the end and I'd written, you know, I'd written it all out. And I always like to put in parentheticals about, you know, the emotion and the psychology and, and, and what I'm going to say on the page. And I thought in those last pages when Harry was dying, I was going to say so much and I was going to really just go, total melodrama and schmaltz it up, you know, and then I get Sal's pages. And if you look at the last, I think two or three pages of that story, there's not a word on the page because everything I'd written about in the plot was there on the page. And I could just shut up and let the pictures tell the story. And that's, you know, that's the brilliance of Sal. 
I I agree, and I just have to ask about that process, because one thing that really grabbed me throughout this story is that every issue opens up with a, a three-by-four panel layout with uh, Kafka and Vermin through the therapy sessions. Right. And was that layout completely on Sal? No, that was that was that was in my plot when I when I read the especially when I was working with Sal at that point, I was very detailed in the plots. And if I had specific, you know, page layouts like you know three panels, uh, three uh, three tiers of three panels each for a nine panel page, that was there in the plot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those those sort of visual breakdowns or those pages where you'd see it was uh, later on in the run where Harry's like in his little cell and it's nine panels. And it's just a close-up of his face in each panel. And then in the very last panel, there's a little smirk on his face. You know, those kind of things were all there in the plot. Wow, that's incredible. But I have to say, you could give that plot to five different artists, and it will, even though it's like really specifically laid out, it will come back in five different ways, you know? And Sal just always brought it back in the best way possible. And, you know, you can describe a scene in great detail, but someone else, if they don't get the, st- the visual storytelling right when they're translating that scene to the page, they're going to blow. You know, one of, one of, the, one of the, the joy and the, and the curse of working Marvel style, because I work both ways. I write full script. I do it Marvel style. But with Marvel style, when it's working with someone like Sal or Mike Zack, another great example where it's all there on the page, you're, I don't have to explain what's happening in the pictures. You know, I don't have to explain the emotion on someone's face. So I'm free to go down psychologically to level two and three and four and five with the characters. Another artist will come along with the same exact plot and the storytelling won't be clear. And suddenly I'm not free to go down to to those deeper levels with the story because I'm using the captions and the dialogue to explain what's happening in the pictures. And you can see it sometimes in comics, you know, and sometimes in very heavy handed ways like, oh, I'm falling off the roof. You know what I mean? (laughs) But you're explaining it in a dialogue. Because it's not clear in the pictures. But working with guys like Mike and Sal, that's not an issue. It's never an issue. Well, since we mentioned uh, Dr. Ashley Kafka and yeah. the treatment for vermin, I just I had a quick question about like how much artistic license was used in those treatments. Uh, the, did her treatment represent how doctors work through trauma with patients at the time? Did, was there was there research involved with that, or was that entirely? you know, your, your artistic license on that? Um, you know, it was, it was a little of both mm-hmm. in that obviously it's, it, you know, it's a comic book. You're not going to do a whole lengthy serious therapy session. At the same time, I had a, a very dear friend. Her name was Freda Kafka. Actually, her last name is Kafka. So I named Dr. Kafka after her because what better comic book name is there than Kafka, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and she was a hypnotherapist. So there were things in the story where, where Dr. Kafka is doing hypnotherapy sessions with, uh, with vermin that were very, very accurate and on the money. And, you know, these were, and, and, and I have certainly been in therapy in my own life. So I, I was bringing those things into it. So I think there is, uh, you know, you, it's not like the detailed accuracy if you were filming a therapy session, obviously, because that's not what you want in a story. What you want is that verisimilitude so that you have the feeling of truth. You don't have to have every detail of that truth. And I really aimed. So, 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 I, I think they are accurate in essence, if not always in detail. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> let's see. I, yeah, I to that psychological aspect, um, a greater theme I picked up on was kind of 
I, I don't know how to better phrase it, either uh, separation of personas or the use of masks, which I've always viewed very similarly. Is that uh, tied to that aspect? Well, that, you know, that's that's sort of a fundamental, really, when you start dealing with these characters. Uh, I've dealt with the same theme, you know, with Batman stories, like, you know, Bruce Wayne took on a certain persona to go out into the world to achieve a certain end. And at what point did he cross the line and become and lose the man and become the mask, you know? So there's always that there's, so what is it? What does Harry become when he becomes the green goblin? Um, and what does Harry lose when he becomes the green goblin? And for that matter, you know, Peter, Peter, you know, the essence of Peter is always there, but he does become something else when he becomes Spider-Man and with him. Um, it gives him a certain amount of, of, I think, bravado, uh, that he doesn't have when he's just Peter. But this, but that's the fun thing about these characters because they're, you know, it, it, psychologically we all wear masks at various points in our lives. Yep. If, if we watch ourselves through a day or a week, we wear different masks with different people. We let out different aspects of our personalities. Um, you know, sometimes that mask is just an aspect of who we are. Sometimes that mask really is, is a protection because we're not comfortable letting who we are out, you know? So we put on a mask to protect ourselves. And these characters are literally walking metaphors, you know, because they're all wearing masks. Um, so they're 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 perfect vehicles to 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 deal with issues like that. Definitely, and that brought up something I was curious about. Um, I I heard that originally Craven's Last Hunt had started as something of a Batman story, and then uh, through a number of revisions, it ended up where it did. In your mind psychologically what's the split between spider-man and batman well you know i wrote two two um two spider-man batman crossovers one for uh, marvel and one for dc and the marvel one especially we really really dealt with um the differences between the two and the difference really is how they reacted to trauma you know um peter for all the trauma that he went through um did not become dark did not become cynical, did not become angry. A lot of things that, that are contained in the Batman persona. Now, I have to say, you know, just, just the individual character, Batman, I've written Batman and I've written him five different ways because these great iconic characters can be interpreted a lot of ways. But definitely we can, I think, agree that Batman goes to a darker place than Peter does as a person. Um, so so there's that. Uh, so really, if you go, go, go back and look at the a Spider and Batman team up and whether we do things like there's a, a scene of, of, you know, Uncle Ben's murder and a scene of, of, of Bruce Wayne's parents murder. And then we discuss kind of how they came out of that. And, you know, one thing for Peter was that he had, first of all, he had been raised with tremendous love and then he had Aunt May there and whatever the trauma was there, he was raised in a different way than it is being raised in a mansion with a butler. No matter how much Alfred cared uh, for Bruce, it's not the same thing as being raised by Aunt May. Um, and Peter had grew to have that love in his life as an adult with Mary Jane, which, you know, Bruce never really had that either. Um, and then there's just who we are. You know, we come into this life a certain way. Uh, and and yes, our experiences shape us. But there's an essential quality of who we are that also uh, comes comes through. And Peter is essentially Peter. He's a good and decent guy who really believes in his core. This is my interpretation. That, you know, that, that, it, that it's, that it's, that people are inherently decent, that the world is inherently good despite all its flaws, you know? I don't know, depending on your interpretation of the character, Bruce Wayne would always agree with that. 
I, I, yeah, I would definitely pretty much get everything you said there. And I have to ask, because I may not get the opportunity to ask this ever again, and this is more how the sausage is made than the psychological stuff, but when you have a Marvel and DC crossover, how is it determined which company that lands on? Yeah, that's something they agree between them. Uh, and whatever in their negotiations, Marvel got it first. And the great thing was I got to do both. I did one for Marvel, and then a couple, a year and a half later or something, I did one for DC. So, uh, so I got to tell two different stories, uh, one through each company, which was really, really interesting. And, and, you know, at the time it was like, oh, great, I'm doing this. But I look back now, it's like, oh my God, I got to write Spider-Man and Batman for both companies. How cool is that? You know? Um, so I, I look back and I'm really, really proud of the fact that I got to do that. And both stories, I think, uh, were, were pretty good. Yeah, no, I think it's incredible. And to my recollection, you're the only person who's had the uh, honor to do that sort of a story. Yeah, well, to do to do the team up for both companies. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else has had that opportunity. Um, so uh, I'm incredibly grateful that I got to do that. You know, a lot of times when you're working on these things, you're not thinking about it. And then time passes and you look back and you go, wow, that was great that I got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and while you're doing it, you're just too busy doing it to really take that half step back and think about it, you know? <laughs> it's like when, you know, when I was working with Giffen and McGuire on Justice League, and, you know, we finished our run, and 10 years went by, and we got back together to work on uh, formerly known as the Justice League. And it, that was when we went, wow, this is really good. I can't believe how good we are together. You know, it took all those years for us to have some distance to go, to, to really realize what we had done in the first place. So sometimes, you know, you're you're in the work and you're not viewing it objectively. You're just doing the work. And then time passes and you can look at it with a little objectivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the, the family aspect of Peter Parker, since the story deals with family and how your history shapes, uh, you know, the, the, who you are as a person, as an adult. Uh, I know you, you already touched on it in relation to Peter Parker versus Bruce Wayne, but how important do you think Peter Parker's family is to the greater Spider-Man mythos, or oh, rather, like, how integral it is to the character? Usually important. You know, I mean, yes, there's the trauma of Uncle Ben's death, but there's also the reality uh, and the positive impact of Uncle Ben's life on Peter. So much of who Peter is was shaped by Uncle Ben, you know? And then after that, you know, Aunt May, one of the great things about working with these characters is you discover them in a different way when you write them. And certainly when I was a kid writing Spider-Man, you know, Aunt May was always dying every 32 seconds. And, and <laughs> you know, she was a sort of neurotic old woman. At least that's the way I viewed it. And then when I started to write the character, I saw I didn't see her that way. I found this woman of incredible strength and resilience and integrity who was so important to Peter Peter's life, I, you know, I joke, I, you know, it's like I fell in love with Aunt May, you know, I had a, I had an emotional affair with Aunt May, you know, <laughs> but the truth is, you know, I just, you, you discover these characters in a new way. And so this, what a great character and yes, how important she was for Peter. And, and, you know, when you grow up with that kind of love in your life, that also allows you uh, to love when you're an adult. If you haven't had that love when you're a kid, you know, you you can't really love in that way when you're an adult. It's it's really, really difficult. And for, for Peter to find someone like Mary Jane and have a, a grounding, uh, beautiful love, and I loved writing that marriage as well. It's another thing I loved when I was working on those books. Um, you know, it's because he was rooted in a, in a really strong love when he was a kid. That allowed him to learn how to love in such a way that he could have Mary Jane in his life. 
So yeah, his family was hugely important. You know, his parents, you know, the, there's the trauma of his parents, but he didn't remember his parents. So they, you know, their impact on his life was, was aside from the traumatic aspect of their death was minimal. It's, it's uncle Ben and aunt May that had that most incredible impact on him. Definitely. I mean, it's a very good point. And, uh, I definitely see that, especially coming through in this in this story, just just the 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 impact of of that Peter's family and his upbringing had on him. Um, I, I have one other one other question about this story, and it's it's just it's a small one. Um, when when Matt and I first discussed reading this. Uh, I went out and bought the individual issues because unfortunately, as far as I could find, it's not been collected in trade and it's not available digitally. Frustrates me no end. I have to tell you, you know, I consider this story to be one of the high points of my work at Marvel, you know, not just on Spider-Man, but of my work, of my work working in superhero comics, actually, you know, and in fact, that whole two year run with Sal, I consider a high point. And that it's, you know, there's been a few individual stories that have been collected in other things over the years, but that, like, the child within hasn't been collected, that the whole run hasn't been collected. Very frustrating to me. I got some, someone contacted me from Italy last year. They just collected the child within in Italy in a beautiful hardcover, you know, and <laughs> why isn't it collected here? All right, I'm, I'm done venting. You may go on with the question. <laughs> well, I, you know, just as, as an aside, like, that's kind of the point of this show and why Matt and I started it was because there are these stories which have been, I don't want to say lost or forgotten, but unavailable to a generation of comic book readers just right. because they haven't been made available. And when you go diving through the back issues, you have hundreds upon hundreds of stories and where are you supposed to start well that, that, that's that's what this show is about is finding right. these ones that are worth talking about and worth revisiting but what I, what i was going to ask was that this this is collected in or i'm sorry this isn't collected this is this is presented as a part one of six right. and then it was not until we did the uh, announcement for the the you know the, this upcoming show that Matt was like well there, there's actually a part seven it's just called aftermath it's it's the, dire- the issue directly after that was was that was that like an artistic choice or was that just completely on on the the publisher deciding well, that actually, that actually it's, a, it's a great question because it came from Danny Fingeroth we, you know, if you if you look at part six and how it ended um, one thing that happens is you know Peter and Harry both realize that they they cannot bring themselves to, to, to reach some sort of final battle. Harry's not going to kill Peter. He can't do it. And Peter just lets Harry go. And Danny was like, you can't just let Harry go. We have to follow up with this and, you know, see, have him trying to find him. And, you know, he uh, doesn't have to find him, but he has to at least go out looking for him and try to bring him to justice. And that just gave me an opportunity to do an issue that allowed us to explore the very the echoes of the things that happened in those six parts because it was a big story with a big emotional impact across the board for a lot of characters. So by Danny coming to me and saying, you know, maybe we need to to explore this a little bit more, it really gave me the opportunity to do that that coda at the end, which no, which wasn't planned from the beginning. And that's you know that's the what happens when you work with a good editor. They spark you to do something that turns out to be for the benefit of the story. Excellent. I'm glad I asked them because that, that's that's really interesting. Um, well, uh, 
Would you ever like to return to Spider-Man? Uh, I, I think the last the last thing I saw that you'd written was a few. I think it was backups in uh, Dan Slott's Craven's First Hunt. Uh, is is there ever a, like do you ever have an itch to return to Spider-Man, or do you feel like you've you've told all the Spider-Man to- stories you'd like to tell? You know, I have I have contradictory answers to that question. <laughs> and, and the one on the one hand, yeah, I kind of feel like I have kind of said a lot. Uh, and maybe everything I, I, I can possibly say with the character. At the same time, you know, if the opportunity arose, who knows what that would spark? Because sometimes all it takes is someone to go, hey, would you like to do blah, blah, blah? And suddenly the unconscious starts working and suddenly these stories come popping out. Um, and the other thing is, is that I, the, the character that really fascinates me the most that I think I could probably write for years, and although I'm not trying to take a work away from anybody, is is um, Ben Riley. You know, I know I know Ben Riley's back in a new series that Peter David is writing, so he's in very good hands. But I, I you know, Ben is a character. When we did Spider-Man: The Lost Years back in the day, that first miniseries about those Ben's lost years when he was on the road, the plan was to do a series of miniseries that would go on because there were five years of his life, which equates into like 20 years of comic book. Uh, time uh, of, of, of it was five years of comic book time, twenty years of real time. So there's so many stories of, of Ben to tell, and I found him to be such a fascinating character, who was both was Peter and wasn't Peter. So the idea of, of doing something with Ben is very interesting to me. And then uh, I also I've been writing for the Marvel has a new animated Spider-Man series called Marvel Spider-Man. I recently finished my third episode of that. So that so it's always fun to 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 find a way to go back go back to the character. But I did do that story that was in, um, I guess that big anniversary issue was it Amazing Spider-Man 700? Was that the number? Oh, that big yes. Diamond, yeah, issue was with the end of the Doc Ock story, and I did a story in there which was sort of on a very conscious level my tribute to the character and his entire history. It was called Spider Dreams, and I really uh, very happy with the way that turned out. So on on the one hand, I was sort of writing my farewell to the character. And yet, you know, when they called me up and said, hey, you want to write for the animated series? Like, yeah, absolutely. And suddenly, hey, it's me and Peter again. And now it's a very different Peter in the, in the animated series than the one that I knew and wrote. But it's still, at its essence, it's still Spider-Man and it's Aunt May and it's, you know, and, and it's all that world. So it's always fun for me to return to that world in some form. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've written a number of these uh uh, direct-to-DVD and streaming animated movies for uh, Warner Brothers with, with the DC characters. I would love to see Craven's Last Hunt done that way for, through Marvel Animation to do a you know a full-length animated movie of Craven's Last Hunt. Uh, what I think would be a great thing, and I would write that in a heartbeat. And I would watch it in a heartbeat. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so now we need, we need Marvel to collect these stories, and then we need we need them to make an animated movie of Craven's Last Time. So okay, I'm glad we got that straight. I want you guys to get on that and make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start the petitions. Uh, you know, you know uh, because <laughs> with the Child Within and, and the whole spectacular Spider-Man run, I, I run into people. People are showing up constantly on Facebook and Twitter to talk about those stories, and there literally are petitions out there. Uh, several <laughs> people have gotten petitions together. Which I don't know whether that does anything, but I'm very touched that they care enough to do it. You know what I mean? Um, to to get these stories collected, and you know when you can say I've had things of mine that have been collected over the years that I never wanted to see again. I shall not mention what they are, but certain stories where it's like, please don't ever put that back in print. You know, and <laughs> and it has been collected in a 
in a $30 hardcover edition. It's like, oh, my God, you know, and and then stories like this that I really I'm so proud of and that they really mean something to me. I would, you know, and you want to see them out there in, 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 in collected edition and they're not there. And I, I and it, it baffles me the choices into into what gets collected and what doesn't. Uh, the, you know, the good news is I think is eventually everything gets collected. This where they do these what these epic editions that Marvel does where they're they sort of go chronologically through the series. Yes. You know, color trade paperback. So I'm sure these stories will eventually be collected in some way. But I would love to see really a nice collection of The Child Within or some sort of, you know, big, big collection of that whole uh, spectacular Spider-Man run, uh, you know, minus a maximum, was it Maximum Carnage, which was at the end, was just a big crossover, which was collected separately anyway. But uh, that was like very separate from everything that came before it. But those that whole Harry saga that ran through from the first from the beginning of Child Within to Spectacular Spider-Man 200, boy, would I love to see all that collected. It really mean a lot to me. I think it'd mean a lot to us too. And again, it's just it's strange that it's never it's never been collected, just because I think uh, both the Sam Raimi and the Mark Webb Spider-Man movies both have a Harry Osborn arc, right. and. Marvel loves collecting and putting out stories related to those to those movies, and I, I'm just shocked that it's it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like when the Doctor Strange movie came out, and the director and 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 Cumberbatch kept talking about this uh, Doctor Strange graphic novel I did with Dan Green called Into Shambhala, Doctor Strange Into Shambhala, and uh, what an influence it was on the movie and the visuals and the this. And so I thought, oh great, that means they're gonna you know it's been out of print for years. They're gonna bring it back in print and put it out in a nice new edition. It never came out, you know, and I'm thinking if the director's talking about it and you're not collecting it, when is it ever going to get collected? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's way beyond. I'm just, I'm just here a freelancer sitting in my house writing my story. So I have nothing to do with those decisions. That's, that comes from, from others. But uh, Marvel, if you're listening, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> well, to that, since uh, Marvel doesn't seem to want to be putting out these collections, which, as discussed, is as baffling to us as it is to you, um, what is uh, out now and coming out soon so that we can help uh, support you to create more great stories? Let's see, what, what's what's happening now? Well, I, I recently, uh, well, it just, just was started streaming about a month ago. I wrote a John Constantine animated series, which is on CW Seed, which is a CW streaming platform which you can watch on your computer, or if you have like Apple TV or Roku, you can watch it there. Um, one of the best animated projects I've ever been involved in. Uh, great uh, Constantine story. Um, Matt Ryan is voicing Constantine again and did, you know, all the voice acting is phenomenal. Just really, really happy with the project, which will, the first five issues, uh, five issues, first five episodes are streaming now. There will be seven more episodes to come, and then there will be a, a full-length DVD movie, which will have 20 more minutes of story in it. I just saw a rough cut of it the other day, and it really, really turned out well. Um, so there's that. I mentioned the uh, Spider-Man animated stuff I've been working on. Keith Giffen and I continue to work on, on Scooby Apocalypse for DC, which is uh, a, a project that I, we sort of stumbled into and turned out to be so much fun. We're, we've been doing it for over two years now, and with, with no sign of stopping, and I'm really happy with that book. Then I have a couple of creator-owned series in the works, one called Impossible Incorporated, which will be out in September for IDW. And um, and then another one that I can't talk about yet, but it's sort of a, a dark, twisty, vertigo-esque uh, story that will be out early next year. I can't even say from what publisher. 
I'm not allowed. But so, you know, so, so animation and, you know, mainstream comics and creator owned and lots of other things floating around the around around the edges as well that I can't really talk about quite yet. Yeah. Keeping right. busy. Keeping busy. It's good to hear that a legend like you, you know, can slow down. <laughs> you know, that's the great thing about what I get to do is that you don't ever have to slow down. Hopefully when I'm 90, I'll still be doing this. You know what I mean? Not necessarily, the, you know, this exact thing, but I'll be writing. I'll be creating because that never you don't retire from that. You don't wake up one day and go, I'm not going to write stories anymore. Or a musician doesn't say, I'm not going to write music anymore. There's a reason why Paul McCartney is whatever he is, 76, and still out playing, you know, three-hour shows uh, every night. Uh, because you, you don't you don't turn that off. You don't stop. And and I always say the, the great thing about what I do and the terrible thing about what I do is every story is a new story. Every story is as if I've never written before. So it's fresh. It's new. Uh, it doesn't matter if I've you know, been doing it for 35 years. Uh, each time you begin a new story, yes, I have a certain skill set, but you're starting with a blank page and you're starting with a new challenge. And it's like what in, you know, in, what in Zen they call beginner's mind. You know, you're, you're, you're starting from square one all over again, which is terrifying and exhilarating. And hopefully that never, that never ends. So I hopefully I'll be doing this as long as I'm breathing. I'm going to keep writing stories. You know, I once years ago, I, would, I actually seriously pondered what it would be to, to stop writing and walk away from it. And I sort of mentally, detached myself from it for the first time in my life which was a difficult and terrifying thing to do and what finally what came back to me was you're a storyteller if no one was paying you you'd be laying on the floor you know in your house somewhere making up stories anyway i can't stop it you know so uh so i'm very grateful that i've got i i i've had and continue to have uh, a career where people pay me to do the thing that i really really love wow that's inspirational as always well, thank you you're very welcome and and yeah and we are really grateful to have you on the show um i, I think that that that's about it for today uh this has been enlightening and just a wonderful conversation and thank you from the bottom of both matt and i's heart to very coming on and sharing your time with us i i appreciate it and i, I you know i I don't take for granted people's enthusiasm for the work. You know what I mean? That's part of the reason why you do it. First, I do it for me, and then you do it because you want to reach people. You want to touch people. So when the stories go out there and they mean something to people, I don't take that for granted ever. So, so I thank you as much as you thank me. All right. Well, how about that interview? That was so much fun for us. We really hope that you guys also enjoyed it. Matt and I thought... It would be weird to talk about this with, you know, Demetrius there sitting there listening to us talk about, you know, whether or not we thought his story should be retold or not. But first, before we get to that, Matt, does this feel like a Spider-Man story to you? Like, it, how, how, does, how does the child within fit into that greater Spider-Man mythos that we're always talking about? This did something for me, and as I said, I, I read this when I was younger, and to me, I always thought Spider-Man being an orphan was a bigger deal, because at the time, my cross-section of Spider-Man stories was largely this, and so I, I just always thought that was a bigger deal, and as I kept reading, I realized this is one of the few stories that actually touched on that aspect, which I felt was very important. 
if you had to put any negatory towards this, towards the Spider-Man bit, would be that, as some have pointed out, JM's Spider-Man has a very Batman-esque quality to it. But as JM pointed out, uh, he he wrote the difference between Spider-Man and Batman when he had to put the characters side by side. I honestly think that, you know, this definitely says a lot about the character at large, but maybe doesn't fit the most classical understanding of uh, Spider-Man as it is to many people. Going off of that a little bit, I I think the story is a little outside of the typical Spider-Man wheelhouse. I mean, when Spider-Man stories are introspective, they're more introspective to the concept of guilt rather than the concept of, you know, abandonment. And so in that way, I can see how this doesn't feel like a Spider-Man story. But then going back again to what JM was talking about with, with family and being such an integral part of the character, I, I feel like the fact that this ties in to those familial uh, aspects of the character it helps it feel more like a Spider-Man story. You know, the the question of Peter Parker's parents is one that kind of exists on the fringe of the Spider-Man mythos. And so I, I think this fits in, in that tradition. Uh, and then as far as like the bat, quote unquote, Batman aspects of this, I, I think it just comes from the more dour spider-man uh that we get here like there are occasions where he'll like snap at kafka and be like i came here for answers not for psycho talk or psychological mumbo jumbo uh which is not what you would expect from someone who proclaims himself as a friendly neighborhood spider-man but i'm willing to extend a little slack on that point just because it would be kind of a whiplash to have this interest like have such an introspective story and such a heavy subject matter and then also have kind of like the wise cracking spider-man because this is a story about his own breakdown uh not just vermins and harry's and there's precedence before and after in this whenever spider-man really goes through something emotional he drops that joking you know jokester facade like he's no longer the court jester he is vengeance um i mean you can especially see that in uh grim hunt that dan slot wrote um or i'm sorry no dan slot didn't write grim hunt that was uh joe kelly wasn't it i couldn't tell you off the top of my head right now but uh, off that point uh, i think it we'd also be remiss to not also juxtapose this with where comics were at the moment. So this was basically 91. And considering that 86 was the year where, you know, comics shifted with Watchmen and Mouse and The Dark Knight Returns, comics were still reeling from that moment or reacting to it. And so the darker, edgier stuff was definitely where comics were at at the time. And this also, within the Spider-Man context, very much being, you know, lined up with Craven's Last Hunt, as you'd easily expect. I, I, I think that tone and that mode for Spider-Man, who, as they point out early on, is still maybe uh, 
maybe had the benefit of the soul of the hunter to put it behind him, but in still some way was, was dealing with the grave and Mary Jane still thought he was reacting to that moment as well, which uh, is where we start the story at. So the more morose Spider-Man is justified in this story. Yes. Um, and it was Joe Kelly. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. So I, I, I feel like we've put to bed the whole Batman aspect, at least for this story. Um, I, I can't speak to the greater Demetrius. Um, well, and to speak to that, if you go one issue beyond The Child Within, the next is a joke issue, wrapping up uh, some of JM's plot threads from Marvel Team-Up with uh, Frogman in particular, and it's a much more fun issue, and it was very much a reaction to the fact that this had been so dour and something of a plant, uh, palate cleanser. So that was recognized in the moment as well. Well, I, I mean... E- even the aftermath issue leans into that. Uh, you get that final splash page with Frogman, and there's an editorial note that says, after you know seven of these extremely depressing comics, we're going to move on to something light and breezy. Like, you know, please keep buying these. They're not all going to be downers. So, with that said, I feel like. It's, this is going to be a real obvious one, but reissued or untold. Oh, this is something, as we discussed with JM, needs to physically be reissued. <laughs> yeah, we are just going way past the metaphor. And yes, Marvel, if you're listening, please reissue these. Um, I, I will personally buy at least two copies. <laughs> um, and then the, the next, the next part of the show the web of rankings matt where are you going to be placing this title drum roll please i easily have to put this at our new number one i'm i'm gonna push back lightly because i i agree with you about 90 percent the only reason i'm pushing back on this is because I feel like this story has a little bit of bloat to it, and I really enjoy the brevity of our current number one vibe. Do you have anything to to comment on that? I mean, vibe was something of a filler issue in its moment, um, and I I do enjoy the the one-off issues as well, but I feel like when an arc is pulled off and you have a satisfying ending, that's always stronger. And it's good to have a mix, but in this case, I feel like this is this is the sort of thing that we started the show to find. This is such a great epic. Plus, we have the bump of the uh, author bothering to talk to us. So, <laughs> well, I, I mean, don't want to sound like we're biased, but no, th- those are fair points. Not all. I will concede the number one spot. Um, I just wanted to throw that one point out there to see see if we have any sort of contention there. But no, no, this this is this deserves to be the number one spot, and I foresee it staying there for a very long time. Just my personal opinion. Wow, you really dove back on that. <laughs> well, 
you know, I, I just didn't, I, I wanted a little conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk to me anytime, buddy. Right. All right. Well, moving away from The Child Within, next time on the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, we'll be discussing Marvel Team-Up number 49 through 51, which is an Iron Man team-up and more. What's the more? More than just Iron Man and Spider-Man. Oh man, who else could they fit in in three issues? No, no, but really, who is the who is the end more? Oh, you're going to have to tune in next time to find out. Or in your case, you're going to have to read it. Uh, well, <laughs> all right then. Okay, <laughs> thanks to everyone for listening to this extra special episode. You can always subscribe to the show via whatever platform you're currently listening on. Or if you're listening on the website, you can check out the show notes below for links to your platforms of choice. Feel free to leave a review with your opinions. We love to hear feedback from you guys. Um, we got our first email uh, to today, I believe. Um, not going to read it because it was just a request for a episode for us to cover, which we will cover that one. Uh, it just so happened to be one that I'd previously thought about covering. So that kind of cemented it. And I mean, that, that's going out to all you guys listening right now. If you have an episode you want to hear about, or rather an issue you want to hear about uh, that would not necessarily fit perhaps a different podcast, feel free to send it to us. We will definitely put it in our consideration. Matt and I have a pretty extensive list right now of comics that we want to cover, but we will get to the ones that you guys suggest. Um, I do want to put a small bit of caveat here. We're still working on the uh, quote unquote definition of untold, but right now our hard lines are major first appearances, major deaths, things like that are just, off the table if the storyline was adapted into a video game you know stuff like that also off the table right if it's something you see on a top five or top ten list it's not going to be something we're gonna talk about it's just not what the show is supposed to be about but anyway if you'd like to support the show please consider joining the amazing spider talk patreon three dollars and 99 cents a month gets you exclusive access to my and matt's spider-man b-title reviews as well as the amazing spider talks reviews of amazing spider-man uh you can also get access with that 399 donation to the patreon only channel in the greater amazing spider talk slack chat room uh, for those who want to donate further, a $10 a month pledge grants you access to the Excelsior Club, which is where Dan and Mark will commission Spider-Man artists. Uh, I think they're shooting for about two times a year to get exclusive commission artwork. And they are always gorgeous. They are always great pieces. I believe they just announced... The latest drawings on their most recent podcast, which as of this recording is the Stone Tablet Saga, Life Tablet Saga. It's got more than one name. Spider-Man got uh, stoned. <laughs> but yes, if you're interested, go listen to that. 
uh, to find out who the artists are because I can't remember off the top of my head. It's probably not, not something I should admit on the air. Uh, <laughs> thank you again to our guest, J.M.D. Mateus, for making this a special episode for us as well as being our first creator on the show. Woo! Matt, where can we find you on the internet? You can, of course, always find me on the tweeters at MagicalMatt42 or hang find me hanging upside down in the Slack channel. Kane, where can we find you? You can also find me on the Slack channel. Uh, outside of that, you can follow my Twitter at KaneWrites. You can also follow the show's Twitter, Untold Talks SPMN. You can email the show at Untold Talks of Spider Man at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Untold Talks of Spider Man. Uh, and then we want to give one more special thanks to the Ellie Badge for providing our theme song. If you want to listen to more from the Ellie Badge, please check out the show notes for links to their band camp and more. And until Matt shows up on my doorstep in a green costume with strong hallucinogens, make mine untold. Oh man, we only have till next week. Oh, do we? Oh, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs>